Welcome to Drilling Deep. I'm your host, John Kingston. And you know who's going to drill more? OPEC. That's who. Actually, it's OPEC Plus that's going to produce more, not necessarily drill more. And that means more oil onto a market that is well off its recent highs. Okay, I kind of started with a lot there. Let's, uh, let's slow down. First, remember that Drilling Deep is in two parts. And in our second part today, our guests of the week are two experts on the LTL sector. And they're going to speak about some concerns they have about how this booming industry is coming out of the COVID pandemic. They're going to be here in a few minutes. But let's switch back to oil. I'm recording this on a day when a lot has happened. Coming into this week, we had the U.S. say right before Thanksgiving that it was going to make available 50 million barrels of oil out of the nation's strategic petroleum reserve. A lot of people did the math on this move and they said, ah, that's only about two and a half days of U.S. consumption. So this is nothing. I didn't look at it that way. Uh, what, what I viewed it as, this was a shift of 50 million barrels of oil out of locked inventories and into public inventories. Let's remember that commodity pricing is not largely a function of inventory numbers, but inventories play a huge role in determining the price of a commodity. That shift of 50 million barrels marked about a 4% increase in U.S. stocks in one shot over two months, and that's a lot. And that isn't the only oil that was going to be released. The U.S. SPR release was part of a coordinated release with other countries as well. So the prevailing consensus was that when OPEC and OPEC Plus were to meet this past week, they would defer their 400,000 barrel per day increase in output that was scheduled for January. They'd look at the possibility of a decline in demand due to the Omicron variant, at least that was the assumption. And then they look at the increase that they had scheduled and they say, nope, that's too much. Remember, every model for next year sees supply outstripping demand. So maybe they would conclude there wasn't a need to add to it. At least that's what OPEC watchers thought the group might do, along with its non-OPEC allies led by Russia. On Thursday, in a move that might be considered a bit of a stunner, OPEC Plus came out and said they'd proceed with the increase. There is an opt-out clause, however, where the producers can abort the increase if the market remains particularly weak. A lot of that will depend on how much of a demand destroyer Omicron turns out to be. It's going to be interesting to see the models for the new year that will be released over the next few weeks. Given all that's happened, you have oil from unexpected sources and the release of strategic stocks. You have uncertainty beyond Omicron. And even if it turns out to be a variant with a relatively weak impact on people, which certainly seems possible at some of the early reports, Omicron is clearly destroying some air travel already. And then you have the supply uncertainty about OPEC Plus and what it will do past January. One thing that I'm sure is maddening to diesel consumers is that the retail price of diesel has barely budged compared to the big collapse of wholesale and spot prices. Wholesale diesel prices are down about 26 cents per gallon in just this week alone. Retail prices are barely down a cent. Great profitable days for retailers. No relief for drivers. That relief will come, but it does take time. Station owners set their own price. The oil companies just set wholesale numbers. They adjust those wholesale numbers in line with moves in the spot market. That doesn't happen in retail, where the station owners will hold on to those higher levels as long as they can. It's frustrating, but there's not a lot you can do about it. Hey, we're going to switch now to a, a topic I'm very excited about. Our guests, we've got two guests actually this week. We're going to talk about LTL. You know, if you look at the performance of the LTL companies on Wall Street, what stands out is just how well they've done. Uh, you know, I, I, I track 52-week highs and 52-week lows almost every day. 
And it, it, did, it didn't go by too, too much long. It didn't have to take too much long before I'd see Saya up there or Old Dominion up there or maybe occasionally Arc Best. But they've been breaking through new 52-week highs on a regular basis. But our guests are here today are here to discuss what they see as some underlying problems in the LTL field that might get overlooked as the company's stock prices continue to soar. So with me are Don Newell and Scooter Sayers. Don is principal and consultant of Newell Enterprises, and Scooter is a principal of Sayers Logistics. They have a total of 75 years in LTL. And, you know, I always like to interview people like them because they are both insiders and outsiders. They're insiders because they work so closely with the industry. They used to be part of the industry. And they're also outsiders. They're independent consultants who get paid to tell their clients some hard facts. So, guys, thank you for joining us today here on Drilling Deep. Yeah. Thank you, John. So, uh, you know, what really struck me was your piece that you did recently on LTL uh, after seeing these record highs on Wall Street for so many companies. And your piece was fairly pessimistic. So, Scooter, let's let's kick things off with you. You said in an email that we exchanged prior to this interview that the operational performance of the LTLs is, quote, quite poor. And that's some pretty harsh words. Why do you rate it as poor? Uh, John, I think it is poor. And I think that if you talk to any of the carriers, they will agree with this. Since COVID has uh, taken place, their operational performance and their customer service performance have struggled just because of the challenges that COVID has brought, brought about. You know, LTL is a, is a, uh, it's, it's a personal business. You can't outsource LTL. You can't do LTL from home. You know, I can work from home. You can work from home. Don can work from home. But if you're an LTL, if you're a truck driver, if you're a forklift operator, you can't do that from home. You have to be on the dock in the truck, interacting with customers, interacting at customer sites, on the dock with other employees. And when COVID is running through a, uh, a site where you've got a couple of people that are out, especially like a pickup driver who knows their route really well, if they're out because they have COVID, now you've got to bring another pickup driver in to go run that route who's unfamiliar with their customers it causes operational inconsistencies. And so the on-time performance for all LTL carriers has been significantly impacted by COVID, and it still is today. So you might not have used this term uh, poor, uh, let's say, you know, two years ago, if we were having this discussion. You, this, this is a deterioration that you see having come from COVID-19. Yes. And, and, and so as, as the impact of COVID is lifted from employees being out, now you've got the issue of the very, very strong demand, which has largely been fueled by COVID, which is really challenging the carriers. Whenever a carrier sees their business increase significantly overnight, it's a challenge for them to handle that business. And they're all struggling with that. Now, they're all showing pretty good ORs for the most part. They're showing good profitability and certainly good stock prices. as I mentioned. You know, what's the incentive mm-hmm. to get better? Uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, I had uh, the, uh, the carrier I used to work to, the, the patriarch of that company, he used to say all the time that we make the best money when we start running out of stuff. And what he meant by that was that when business was really, really strong and you needed more workers, you needed more trucks to handle more of the freight, you just couldn't bring all that to bear immediately. So you were challenged with not enough labor, not enough assets. And, and because of that, you weren't adding all that cost as rapidly as you really needed to. So you had this influx of revenue, but your cost was, was not catching up as fast. Over time, it will catch up. And I think all the carriers are recognizing that. They're trying to figure out how to adjust and absorb for the influx of the business they have as they ramp up their hiring, as they ramp up more trucks. They don't want to overspend on it. And so they're, they're trying to modulate that as best as they can. And I think as they're doing that, 
I think this represents a really good time for all the carriers to look at all of the way that they conduct business and figure out how can I pull cost out of the equation? Because what the carriers want is as the market stabilizes and it will stabilize, they want to keep these record profits they're making today. They want to keep that profit level in place. They don't want to see profits spike up and then go back down as COVID lifts. They want to keep those record profits in place for the future. You know, Don, let's turn to you here. Analysts like to talk about moat. That's a very popular word. Uh, you know, a moat is a really used to be called a barrier to entry. Same idea. LTL has always had a significant one, very much in contrast to truckload. You can't just start an LTL company. You need significant real estate to do that. You don't really necessarily need that in truckload. Given that, you know, are some of the current LTL practices that, uh, that you find troubling, are they somewhat protected from competition? Uh, no, I don't think so, John. I don't think there's any protection from competition. The market is booming. There are, uh, as you alluded to earlier, and, and Scooter talked about, the profits are high. But we go back to that point where the operations are struggling. They're struggling through the uh, bombardment of freight. Uh, they're struggling with their partnerships or supposed partnerships with shippers. Um, shippers are having a hard time too. And sometimes they get a hold of a, a carrier's trailer uh, for a delivery and they hold on to it until they have enough freight to fill it up because they don't want to spend so much money having this and that every single day. So the carriers don't know where their trailers are sometimes. So that's part of the struggle that the carriers are dealing with. And that's part of the cause of what we, Scooter and I, believe is the, the drop in performance of operations for the LTL. There's just, look at the ocean carriers with all those uh, container ships sitting out there in the ocean waiting to get in. LTL has some of that. It's obviously not as dramatic. But uh, it is some of the same kinds of things. When they talk about the uh, the pr problems with the supply chain, LTL is a very important part of the supply chain. And they're seeing the same kinds of issues that most all other aspects of the of the chain are. So uh, it, it's it's difficult. And what Scooter and I are talking about, hopefully the carriers can understand that now's the time when they're having all these profits, now's the time for them to really address some of the root causes of the issues that they're running up against so that, excuse me. Uh, you're on drilling deep. We're very real time. You never know when a call might come in. So uh, <laughs> yeah, right. when, when uh, let me finish up when, yeah, go when, ahead. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was my son calling actually. Okay. Uh, so when things slow down, when the business drops down to what theoretically will be more normal levels this year, next year, who knows when, they want to have their operations ready to go to, to maximize their efficiencies, which maximizes their profits. And I think, and I think Scooter agrees, we think, I think the key to doing that is fine-tuning the relationships with shippers. Uh, have, you heard the, have you heard the term shipper of choice? Of course, yes. We, we, do a sh we, we write about them all the time at Freight Waves. Well, the carriers need to work harder 
to identify and work with shippers of choice and make being shipper of choice more uh, attractive to those shippers so that they get more business from them and the, and the shippers like the carriers more. So uh, I, I think I've talked enough uh, for, yeah, for now. I, I mean, yeah, I mean, some of the things that you put in your piece, um, both Twitter and Don, uh, were really kind of surprising to me. You were talking about electronic bills of lading. And, you know, I've heard this, that out in the supply chain, it's still a tremendous amount of paper. That's, uh, that's getting moved around. And, you know, this is 2021, almost 2022. And you still clearly have paper as a key part of the supply chain. This this sounds like an easy fix. Why isn't it? Which one? Who wants to take that one? Well, Scooter, um, I think you're uh, I think you're muted from a, one of the challenges, yeah. John, from a paperwork standpoint, is that you've got literally tens of thousands of LTL shippers out there and they literally have just as many options for generating a bill of lading. So uh, when you think about UPS and FedEx, if you're shipping UPS and FedEx, you're basically introducing your paperwork, your, da- your data into their network via their systems. Uh, for LTL, you can use a carrier's website to generate a bill of lading. You can go create a bill of lading in Excel. You can use a, a ones of hundreds of thousands of TMSs out there. So there's all kinds of ways to generate a bill of lading. And what the industry has long needed and now they're getting is they're getting an electronic bill of lading standard that allows that to now come about. And I think that what's really helping the LTL industry over time is what the 3PLs do, because the 3PLs have access to TMSs, have access to electronic bill of ladings, and they can provide that technology to shippers of all sizes that could not do that on their own. How important are the 3PLs in the LTL business? Obviously, in truckload, they're huge. Um, I know that certainly, I guess I'm going to make a statement here and you can swap me down, that more business gets done on LTL that, that did not get brokered by a 3PL and certainly a truckload. Uh, but then I saw some other numbers, maybe it was in your piece, or that that you know that, that brokered freight in the LTL field is probably about a third of all freight. Uh, so that's that's a significant size. So to your point, Scooter, the 3PLs do have a are in a position to kind of change some of these practices, correct? Oh, absolutely, especially for the small and medium-sized businesses. You know, the, the, the carriers, especially because of COVID, the carriers have pulled back on their sales force and what they're doing. Uh, it's allowing the 3PLs to step more into that. And the 3PLs uh, offer services to smaller and mid-sized companies that the carriers simply don't offer. They offer them uh, better pricing, better negotiating power. They give them technology that they don't have or they can't access that the carriers don't give them. And they also give the uh, those customers a, a neutrality. You're not working with one carrier, you're working with multiple carriers, which is incredibly important right now with capacity constraints. Because if you're an LTL shipper using one carrier, you're probably going to be subject to some capacity issues. But if you've got access to four or five or six or more carriers, then if you've got one carrier that can't pick up your freight today, you can probably find someone else who might be able to get that for you. Are the 3PL companies set up to really deal with the specific issues of LTL? I mean, it's a totally different pricing basis. Uh, do, you, do you find that some 3PLs just can't handle it? They're just not really in shape for this? Uh, I think a lot of your larger 3PLs are in shape for it. I think they understand uh, because they've got the scale and they've got the level of business, they're having those uh, conversations with the carriers and working together. And I think that's what you see today. I think you see the 3PLs and the carriers working in, in better lockstep than they ever have. The carriers are using 3PLs as basically a valve to control freight. They can turn freight off and on lane by lane, especially if it's transactional, and that helps them. 
and the three PLs are then using that as a sell to their shippers that I can get you the best price lane by lane, carrier by carrier every day if you go through me. So it's a pretty good symbiotic relationship that's going on right now. Don, go ahead. You want to say something? Yeah, I, I did. Um, the three PLs, as they get into the business, uh, sometimes they don't really know what they want to do. Uh, there are three PLs who get in strictly for TL, at least initially. And then a year or two later, they want to expand and they're not sure. They don't quite know how to do LTL or how to get involved with it. So there's a learning curve for the three PLs too. Um, Three PLs have been around a long time, John, and they have learned a lot. Uh, the, the larger three PLs are very professional. They know exactly what uh, they can provide to the shippers uh, to help them become that shipper of choice that be, is attractive to the LTL truckers. So um, they, they've learned very well over the last, what do you think, Scooter, 15, 20 years? Yeah, absolutely. So they're, they're learning about pricing. They're learning how to negotiate pricing better. Uh, they're learning about, they're even learning about NMFC classification, which nobody wants to learn about that, but it's there. So it is one of the things that they, uh, they can help the shippers. The shippers don't want to know all that stuff. They don't, they, don't, they don't need to. They don't need to learn all that stuff. When there's three PLs who are fully capable of helping them with pretty much everything they need to do for their shipments. In your piece, uh, you really were pretty heavily heavy on the criticism of pricing practices. Uh, and what are you, what's your primary concern with those practices today? We're talking about pricing practices. Yeah. Pricing practices. Are you talking about the use of the classification versus density versus whatever? Well, well, I wasn't sure. I mean, I, when I read your piece, it was a, it was a general criticism uh, that had a few specifics. But so why don't you talk some of the specifics? Why don't you tell us what are some of the price, pricing practices that are ongoing in the LTL business that you really have an issue with? Go ahead, Scooter. Yeah, well, I, th I think for starters, I think a lot of it really circles down and comes down to the fact that space is what matters in LTL. Um, and space really is density. Um most everything shipped in LTL, not everything, but the majority of what's shipped in LTL is going in cardboard boxes and it's going on pallets. Density is pretty much what governs and controls the cost and what governs the uh, the revenue. Uh, and shippers, to know what their cost is going to be, what the carriers are going to charge them, they have to know what their dimensions and their weight is. And what's, what's very interesting about the LTL industry is that here today, uh, no single carrier requires shippers to, to, to provide DIMMs on the bill of lading. They require weight, they require NMF, they require class, they require uh, descriptions, but they don't require uh, dimensions, which is uh, really, uh, really rather interesting. So I think that's one, one, of the, one of the challenges with LTL pricing is that you have to know dimensions to know what your charges are, but shippers generally just don't do a very good job of that. And so that leads to a lot of challenges with uh, freight invoices not matching the quotes that they get. Carriers are investing millions of dollars on dimensioning technology and staffs to measure freight, um, and they're catching it. They're getting better and better at it, where theoretically, if you're a shipper and you're shipping something and not describing it right, they're going to catch it. They're going to get their revenue. Uh, and so it just seems like the industry is very ripe for a, a reset And number one, how pricing works, and number two, how do we get that data we need up front so that the carrier and shipper in lockstep 
on what the uh, what the profile of the freight is and what the charges are going to be. Don? Uh, yeah, Scooter mentioned the NMF, NMFC, National Motor Freight Classification. And I, th- I think uh, that's one of the holdbacks, one of the reasons why there's no um, fully uh, accepted putting dimensions on every bill of lading because uh, shippers and carriers up until this point have used the National Motor Freight Classification class, and they didn't need the dimensions and, and all that stuff. But over the last 15, 20 years, they have really, really uh, discovered that and, and joined the band that, that uh, Scooter's actually leading, that dimensions are the single most critical uh, aspect of cost for LTL truckers. They need to know how big it is, how much space it takes up. And the dimensions will tell them if it's super long, which adds handling issues. So if if every bill of lading had accurate dimensions for every handling unit, that's another thing that carrier, that uh, shippers have to get used to. It's the dimensions of the pallet, not of the boxes that are on the pallet. Uh, as they go with the dimensions becoming more prevalent, the carriers can easily cost, and if they got a, if they have a trust factor, and this is where we're getting to what what you refer to as our commandments, uh, we wouldn't call them commandments. We we'd call them our our suggestions for a better world for LTL and their shippers. If they got used to and did a good job of providing accurate dimensions on their bills of lading, then the carriers would be able to trust them. They'd trust each other. Uh, And with that trust, there'd be a drop in rebills, corrections, balance dues, all of that stuff, which does nothing but cost the carrier and the shipper money. So that's that's what we're all about. We we see an opportunity for the industry to take a big step forward with accurate dimensions on every bill of lading and a trust forming between the carriers and the shippers. Yeah, you talk about dimensions. I remember one of the first lessons I received in LTL was, you know, 500 pounds of rocks and 500 pounds of feathers get billed at the same price, but they're obviously very different. So you're, you're, you're kind of driving that point home. Uh, who takes the lead on this? Uh, does this come out of, does this have to come out of a, a, a big 3PL changing its policy? Not, excuse me, not big 3PL, uh, but a big LTL carrier that's got a lot of clout uh, that has enough customers that it can say, okay, here's the way we're going to do business from now on and see others fall in line. Do you, do you see leaders out there like that? Yeah, I think I think one of the first steps is to just get to the point where there's an expectation that uh, dimensions need to be on the bill of lading. They need to be captured by the shipper. They need to be provided on the bill of lading. I think one thing that carriers can do, you know, some of this is going to be a individual carrier, individual customer, one-on-one transaction, kind of like politics. It's all local. But I do think that there are some big picture things that can happen uh, if one carrier, for example, really focuses on how do I incentivize all of my shippers to give me an electronic bill of lading with accurate data. The carriers have the means of knowing this. The carriers can tell who's giving them an electronic bill of lading versus a paper bill of lading. They can tell who's giving me an accurate bill of lading versus a bill of lading that's inaccurate or missing data. They can tell all this. If they start incentivizing their shippers to give them this data, you know, financially, uh, I think there, I think that's a huge uh, competitive advantage, advantage for 
any carrier that really steps wholeheartedly into doing that. Um, I think partnering closely with 3PLs is a great way to do that because a 3PL can bring carriers a large influx of business that does have that electronic bill of lading and can work with those small shippers to get them to collectively provide good data. We don't have a lot of time, but I do want to run through quickly what you call your four-part pledge. This was in the piece that caught my eye. Uh, and, and you've touched on a lot of these things today, so this is not, not necessarily all new. The shipper is committed to providing BOL, a bill of lading, with accurate cargo handling unit dimensions, weight description, package type, number, and service requirements. So you already talked at length about the dimensions. The carrier respects the shipment of cargo handling unit dimensions and weight from the shipper and promises to allow an appropriate tolerance, possibly 5%, that allows for negligible modifications. The shipper promises to use electronic bills of lading based on industry standards. We discussed that. The carrier promises to issue a single invoice that includes all charges, including requests and or special services provided. And this gets to another point um, that it was in the piece that there's still a lot of disputes between shipper and carrier about what the charge is. And you would have thought, you would think that that would be all kind of laid out up front and wouldn't be a surprise, but that's obviously not the case. So is this a constant source of friction between LTL carrier and shipper? Uh, yes, I think there is. I think if you ask any LTL sales rep out there, or whether they're working for a carrier or a 3PL, they're probably going to tell you that they spend hours of their day every day dealing with these types of issues. Uh, it's, it's, it's a total waste of time. It's a... Uh, Every time a carrier corrects a freight bill due to a reclass or a reway, it's almost guaranteed to be a surprise to the shipper because they generated a quote beforehand on what they thought the charges were going to be. Now they're getting an invoice that's for an amount that's higher than that, and they've got to go figure out what to do with it, which largely means they're going to absorb that because they can't pass it on to their customer. So it's a, it's a huge issue. Don, last question. What, uh, what's been the reaction out of the industry to your, your suggestions, your, your four commandments, your four pledges, whatever you want to call it? Uh, I'm, I'm sure you got some feedback. Uh, yeah, we've had some feedback, but surprisingly to me, it, uh, we haven't been flooded with a lot of stuff. Uh, Scooter, you might have more because uh, you're a little bit more active on LinkedIn than I am. Yeah, I, I talk to a lot of people, and uh, especially when I'm talking to people on the sales side with carriers and 3PLs, there's there's a lot of resonance with it. I get a lot of people thanking me for putting the information out there, wishing that what I say could really be reality. Um, I was uh, speaking with a uh, with a uh, a uh, with a webinar manager at a carrier just this week, and talking about, hey, I'm reading what you're writing about. It's really good stuff. Maybe we can see the industry move that way. So it's almost like everyone involved in LTL recognizes it and sees it and says, yes, we need to move this direction, but. Just no one, no one really seems to know how to really just go make it happen tomorrow. So I think it's going to take time. It's going to, it's not going to happen tomorrow. It may not happen in 2022. I think it's going to take years to take place, but there's got to be some of that movement, you know, grassroots level movement starting up to really get everyone moving in this direction. Right, Don, final word. Uh, Scooter's right on point there, and it's nothing new. I've been in the industry for a long, long time. Uh, of the 75 years between us, I have most of them. But it's been a constant issue my entire career. Shippers not knowing what their class is, not knowing what they need to do. Carriers um, not helping them learn. And, and that's what we're trying to, to push out there is get that partnership going so that the carriers can help the, the shippers learn. 
WNR, I mentioned it to you before we actually started, WNR results have gone through the roof. I started with uh, Roadway Express doing WNR back in 1977. At the time, Roadway, Roadway would pick up a million or two extra dollars on WNR. By the time I left, they were picking up over $100 million in extra revenue. Well, it's not extra, recovered revenue based on weight corrections and uh, classification corrections. Those carriers, what was $100 million, are, are probably up to $150. Some of the carriers might be up to $200, $250 million recovered. And they've spent a ton of money to enable that. It would be wonderful for everybody if they didn't have to do that, if the shippers got it right the first time, they didn't get bills of lading, they didn't get uh, balanced dues, rather, and the, the shippers, the carriers, rather, would have a lot less need to spend a lot of money to double check their shippers. Well, I, I was wondering if you're, you said they spent a ton of money, whether that was a pun. And if you didn't intend one, it was a very good one. And talking about uh, weights in the LTL business. So thank you for wrapping up this terrific interview with that. So I want to thank Don Newell and, Scott, and Scooter Sayers for joining us today on Drilling Deep. Drilling Deep is part of the Freight Cash family of podcasts from Freightways. You can find us on all the leading podcast platforms. I've been your host for today, John Kingston, and please join us again.